you got a Bible, open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to kick off in verse 8. Let me just um, throw in there with Jennifer, thank you so much for uh, honoring her, Reynolds and, and uh, tribe. Um, I echo his comments about her and, um, and all that she is. He, I, I, um, to give you a football analogy, which kind of everything in my life boils down to, I out-punted my coverage when um, I married her. So I love you, sweetheart. Thank you um, so much for being uh, a wife that far surpasses anything that uh, I am worthy of. Well, hey, here's what we're going to do today. We are in the second um, series of our messages on spiritual growth. And we are looking at, uh, over the course of the next few weeks, aspects of what it is to grow in Christ. And we talked about last week from John chapter 15 first part of that chapter there where Jesus gives us a command. He doesn't pull any punches. He says, in fact, that it is, it is mandated. It is mandatory. In fact, he, he takes this really hard line that it, the New Testament and the Bible and Jesus has no category for a Christian who's not growing and bearing fruit. And so, you know, a person that claims Christ needs to, to some degree, be bearing fruit and growing in Christ. Now, of course, there's different levels of that, and that doesn't cause us to be like suspicious of each other or, you know, fruit inspectors. But, but it does mean that we, we need to be growing in Christ. And, and so if you missed that last week, I want you to grab that. And this week we're going to settle on this one notion, incredibly important, I think, idea, foundational idea of living with Christ and abiding with Christ, which is what he told us to do in John 15 last week and is a fundamental concept in growing in him. And, and we're going to look at this idea of repentance. And then in the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into specific ways that we grow. But uh, I, I realize that today it's one of those words. It's a religious word. And it's one of those words that we kind of classify as sort of church language and like repentance. Oh, great. I mean, thanks, Brad. I wanted to have a nice lunch with my mom and, you know, Chill out today, and we're going to talk about repentance. I mean, just the word feels kind of heavy, but uh, hopefully it'll, it'll bring great joy to us today. So I'm looking forward to it. Hey, let's do this. Let's, um, before we get into it, let's pray and ask God to, to just settle our hearts into hearing from his word, opening ourselves up to the spirit of God to speak to us. But we just sang some songs and... Um, Wait, I'm not going to pray yet. All you guys are heads are bowed. Just saying, look up. Give me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Bring it back here for just a second. Um, I'm sorry. Bad tempo. Um, like that first song, God is bigger than the world we live in, the air I breathe. I mean, think about just the enormity of that statement. Think about that. God is bigger than the air I breathe. I mean, wow. Doesn't that just make you want to just shadow box? And then that, that song, if you're a Christian, we just paid, we're saying just a second ago, Jesus paid it all. He washed my sins away. I mean, think about the... The reason for praise that should bring in our lives. And so, look, we haven't just kind of gone through the motions, honored some moms, released the kids, shook a hand, threw some money in the plate. And, oh, now, now we've got to start learning and thinking and worshiping. I mean, everything we do, we're, we're extolling God. And so, in, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. 
And, and I'll, I'll, I'll begin that prayer so you know when to, to bow your head. <laughs> and, and I'm going to ask that the Spirit of God would come in and like, open up our hearts. He's the great communicator. No matter where you are, look, there's, there's people in here that are from all over the spectrum. There's folks that are struggling with Christ. There's folks that have been Christians for a long time that are doing well, that are pouring their lives out for the gospel. There are probably some of you in here that think you're Christians, but you're not. There, there are people that, that are, are in a rut. There are marriages that if we could really be honest with one another, we're, we're, are just, are just, you're at each other's throats. There's, there's people that are wanting to live for Christ, but they're struggling with some sin. There's folks that they can put on a good outward appearance, but deep down inside they're just, they're just suffering from a lack of confidence and insecurity. And maybe there's anger. Maybe, there's all sorts of stuff just walking just in this room right now. And, and in just a moment, we're going to ask this really audacious thing we're going to say god tune us all collectively into what you're doing and so before i pray let's let's just acknowledge that christ and the spirit of god can break through anything and open up our hearts to make this not just church but a time when we meet with god collectively as god's people and that just that just that just amps me up it just, it does. And I want it to amp you up as well. Now, you don't have to do it like I do. I realize I'm a little bit gregarious. But come on, regardless of what your personality is like, let's just, yeah, God, come. Let's invite him in. If you could kind of turn it down just a little bit. It's a little hot up here for me before I pray. But let's just lean forward into what God wants to do in us, through us, to us today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... Just today, the fact that we can gather the sun, freedom, cars, air conditioning, pillows. There's so many people in this world that don't have pillows. And I get mad when one of the little feathers pokes through the fabric and sticks. God, what is it? Come on, Lord, right now, break into our, our comfort and our arrogance and our... And our lackadaisicalness and shake us in love and lift up our eyes and help us open up our hearts and break through, God, break through tired hearts, break through rebellious hearts, break through hearts that are in a rut, break through hearts that feel wronged, break through hearts that are self-absorbed, break through proud and arrogant hearts, break through insecure hearts, break through... Breakthrough, God, whatever right now would be an obstacle for us to just let the Spirit of God refresh in us, refresh us and be our glory and the lifter of our head. And as we open up your Bible and we just read a few verses and we contemplate on this beautiful concept of what it is to repent, God, would you stir our hearts so that we would leave this room in a little while not having... Not having this little idea that, oh, we went to church today, but rather that God himself moved amongst a group of people and stirred our hearts so that we might grow in him, so that we might be more effective for the sake of the kingdom, which brings true joy. So do that in us, God, I pray, and, and use my feeble words with, some, uh, with, with power from on high for the sake of these people I love them so much I love this place I love this church I love the great privilege I have to preach the gospel 
And so God, help me do it well today, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. Well, you know that um, generally here... We like to kind of preach through books of the Bible. We haven't done that in a while. We're probably going to get into preaching through the book, a book of the Bible or chapters of the Bible like Psalms again in the summer. Um, and that's good because it helps us stay in context with what's going on in that letter. And sometimes it's kind of dangerous when you do what's called proof texting. And what that is is when preachers or teachers come up with an idea and then they search all around the scriptures to try and prove what they're saying which sometimes works but sometimes doesn't because sometimes you can rip things out of the bible out of context just to kind of make it say what you want it to say and you can watch christian television and the vast majority of the preachers on tbn anytime and that'll be a good example of what i'm talking about you just kind of jerk stuff out of context so that it can fit what you're saying and to some degree, I'm doing that today, but I think I'm, I, I, humbly, I kind of think I'm keeping it in context. But what we're going to do is we're, we're going to parachute down into 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So before we do that, let me give you a little background of where we are. What has happened is Paul has written a letter to this church at Corinth, which is in the Roman Empire, and they are a, a rather, well, they're just a carnal, sinful whacked out group of Christians who have come to Christ. Paul has, has helped to plant this church. He's preached the gospel to them. And, but yet they, they, they still, like they have, many of them have come to faith in Christ for salvation, but they haven't really worked out their sanctification yet. They're still, they're still in all sorts of sexual sin. They're still dabbling in some old ways, some pagan ways. They're, they're very self-absorbed. They're very selfish. They're very gifted people. God has blessed them in many ways. He's poured out His Spirit on them. They, are, they have many spiritual gifts, but they're misusing them for their own selfish benefit. And so 1 Corinthians is this letter that he writes to him before this one. And he is, he's rather hard on them. He corrects them rather sternly and harshly. And then in between the first letter of Corinthians and the second letter of Corinthians, there's very likely another letter that didn't make it into the Bible where, again, he gives them some correction. But this time, he's correcting them because he got word where there was probably an opponent or a faction of people in Corinth, part of the church, that after Paul's first letter to them rose up and began to discredit Paul, began to speak harshly against him, began to try and, and um, win some influence from this Corinthian church away from Paul. And so Paul was grieved over the fact that there was this dispute over you know, his, his, um, sort of his credentials or his authenticity as a true messenger of God, and he was grieved over this. So he writes this second letter to try and refute that other crowd that is bad-mouthing him, and now he's waiting for Titus, his ministry assistant, to come and give him word of the, you know, the, the results of this letter that he's written to them. And so he's waiting, and in the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Titus doesn't show at this meeting spot that he was supposed to meet with him at. And so he's even more fearful, like, oh my gosh, maybe, maybe these people have won the day, and now it's, he's, they're dragging the Corinthians away, and maybe, maybe my letter you know, um, didn't make it or fell on deaf ears, or maybe they received it poorly. And so Paul is just kind of in, 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 in turmoil here, waiting to see what the fruits of his letter are. And then we find out, at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 7, that... Actually, Titus does meet back up with Paul. He did give the Corinthians the letter. And 
thanks be to God, it produced the desired effect that Paul wanted it to produce. In fact, it did bring about repentance and sorrow and change and a turning in the heart of the Corinthians towards Paul. And so he is now rejoicing over that and writing about that. And he gives us in these three verses where we're going to parachute in just a brief but very powerful teaching on what this idea of repentance is. So let's go. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 8. And he's speaking about his letter here. And he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for the sake of that letter, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. I kind of like this kind of helps me realize that the Bible is written by men, that God works incarnationally through men, and it's not just the Holy Spirit, you know, writing, taking over and making a robot write down things, or it's not just the makeup of of some people that want to write this book. I mean, this is a real letter that God inspired a real man, and he's so kind of scatterbrained and anxious. I mean, he's like, he's, he's like from, like, there I go. He's from California. Like, what, I mean, I, mean, I don't know. Did I, what, I, I mean, he, he came in, and look at this sentence here. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. That, have you ever talked like that? Of course we do. Like, ah. I mean, I didn't mean that, but I didn't mean that. I, I, you just, what this means is this was a real letter written by a real guy who's toiling over this situation. I mean, he's, he's white-knuckling this bad boy. He's, his heart is on the table. I mean, I, I, I'm glad I had a desire effect. I didn't want to offend you, but I'm glad I kind of offended you. I mean, come on, get in that. Get in that. that you guys aren't there. I just think that's beautiful. It's a real dude writing this letter. You ever had a hard situation with somebody and you're like, you're clicking on, you pick up the phone. Wait a minute. I know you've done this. I know you've done this. Have you ever had to leave a tough message on voicemail? Hit pound to send or one to listen to your message again and you redo it. All right. We're going to do a little spiritual honesty quiz here. How many of you have redone a hard message like three or four times on voicemail? Okay. We've got about 14 or 15 honest people in this room. And the rest, this message is for you on repentance. <laughs> okay, so he's written this letter, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, listen to this, but because you were grieved into repenting. Okay, now before we go further, let's talk about this word repenting. It's kind of one of these heavy religious words that doesn't get enough explanation a lot of times in church culture. What this word repenting means in English from this Greek word, is it literally means to change your mind and take on a new purpose and begin to go a different way. It's actually the root word of the Greek word of which it comes from. It actually has its origins in a, in a, a maritime navigational term, meaning to turn a ship around and begin to move it another way. And so what, what literally repentance means is to change your mind and purpose and begin to walk in that new purpose away from the direction that you were previously walking in. And so what Paul is saying is, is that your repentance wasn't just sorrow or it wasn't just, ah, shucks, I wish that wouldn't have happened, but I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. It literally brought about a change in your life and your grief, which you felt some conviction there, brought about a change. Then let's pick back up midway through verse 9. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10. 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In verse 10, Paul outlines two types of grief. There is worldly grief, and then there is godly grief. Worldly grief leads to death, and godly grief leads to salvation without regret. What's the difference between worldly grief and godly grief? I think we, we could spend a whole few Sundays on, on just this concept alone, but, but to kind of give it a quick summary, I think that um, ultimately... You know, everybody, when they do something that's wrong or they know that they've made a mistake, there's this kind of this moment of sorrow. And Paul says that, hey, this, there's, this sorrow can kind of go two ways. It can either be worldly or it can be godly. But I think the real difference is, is that, that worldly grief is, is, is when we're kind of only sorry because it has negatively impacted us. Whereas godly grief is sorrow because we truly realize that we have wronged God and somebody else. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the difference in these two types of grief between a kid who's caught doing something. A couple of weeks ago, our daughter Bella, um, and she should be way past this time, but she's four years old, and with a colored, non-washable markers, decided to make the hallway going into our master bathroom. And by the way, the master bathroom is the hub of all activity in our family. I don't know how that happened, but our kids, I think they're going to start setting up TV trays and eating in there. Like they use, a, they use our bathroom, they use our bath and shower, they, everything, they, they use our toothbrushes. It's just, it is, this smallest room in the house is the Grand Central Station. Anyway, leading into that, she decided to do a little artwork on the side of the wall. And, and, and we, we confronted her with her sin um, because Abe couldn't have done it. And Look, if my 10-year-old and my 8-year-old did that, we got bigger problems than we even realized. And so we knew it wasn't a boy, so it had to be a little 4-year-old girl. And she, in fact, I don't know if she ever really got broke. I don't think she ever came to true repentance. She was, she was only grieved because, you know, she was caught and now she was in trouble. And we, we were gentle with her. We tried to, with kindness, lead her to true repentance. But she was, she was grieved basically because she got caught. Worldly grief produces in us just a manifestation of our own idolatry where we are still on the throne where where ultimately what has been hurt is our reputation and we're just worldly grief is just is just a religious form of embarrassment public embarrassment whereas godly grief makes us realize that we have truly wronged God. Look, there's this, there's this psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 51. Don't, don't flip there, but I'll kind of summarize it for you. Some of you, I'm sure, know the story about King David, who is a central figure in the Old Testament, and he is God's king. He's, he's the king after God's own heart, this great man of God. In the midst of his rule and reign over God's people, he, he um, commits adultery with one of his soldier's men, impregnates her and to cover that up he goes through a series of steps where ultimately it leads to the murder of that soldier and so david is on the record here for for adultery and murder and then he writes in response to the prophet nathan putting his finger the finger of god pointing it directly at david and and pointing out his sin david writes this psalm 51 and in that psalm he says something really really interesting and very very important about understanding repentance he says 
against you, and he's speaking in the psalm about his sin there with Bathsheba, adultery and then murder covered up. He says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. Now, obviously he sinned against his nation. He sinned against this woman. He sinned against this woman's husband, his captain. And he, he sinned against a, a vast number of people. But David, David was so aware of how he injured God in that moment that his main focus in his repentance is he's saying, God, what I have done here is I've not just embarrassed myself. I haven't just hurt people in my world. I haven't just made it worse for me. I haven't just sullied my reputation or my status as king. But God, I have sinned against you. You only have I sinned against. I mean, think about the the difference there between worldly grief and godly grief that David, David had when he realized his sin. And this scripture in 2 Corinthians tells us clearly that worldly grief produces death. It produces, it's just basically idolatry. It's just basically we're embarrassed because we didn't get our way or because we lost face in that situation, whereas worldly grief produces a life without regrets. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. And we'll explain that in just a second. But before I do that, I think we need to settle down on this one point. Is that, remember at the beginning when I said that repentance um, is kind of one of those heavy words where um, we tend to think, oh, gosh, you know, I've got to repent. And now here's Brad, the religious guy, pointing his finger at me, saying, oh, we've got to be sorrowful. We've got we to repent. I think that we won't truly understand how beautiful this concept is of repentance until we understand that what is on the other side of repentance is actually joy. Paul is saying to the Corinthians that when, you, when, you, when this letter hits you and when you became aware of your sin against me and against you know, just one another, it, it, it hit you and then it worked something in you. Certainly there was that moment of embarrassment where you realized you were wrong, but then there was this pursuit, I mean this earnest pursuit of what God truly, this, this way, this, this, this way of life that we can be clear of all wrongs between us that brings about joy. And so what he says is you're going after this and you're going after it so hard that it actually brings about, it brings about a relief in you because now there's no, there's no, there's nothing between you. There's nothing between you and anybody else. You are free to now be, to live out your salvation without regret. That is, that is a beautiful place to be. And, and if we can push through, if we can push through the uncomfortableness of just kind of going through having a repentive heart when we wrong somebody, it brings us into a place of great growth and great joy. Um, I was talking to some guy this week, and um, he basically was coming to me um, repenting. And he was saying, Brad, I haven't been what I needed to be in this situation. And I was repenting to him. And he's kind of been disconnected from his brothers in Christ and the church for a while. And I said, I said man, think about it this way. He says, you know, I, I want to come do this to you, but I, I need to do this kind of to a bunch of other folks too. But it's just kind of embarrassing. You know, I know that, I've, I've, I'm, I, know that I am wrong in this situation. But just kind of, kind, of, kind of going public with this is really, really difficult. And I said, I said, look at it this way, bro. Think of yourself as like a starving man. 
outside of a buffet restaurant. And I'm not, I'm not talking Golden Corral here. I'm talking, or maybe for some of you, actually, I think that was our first date was Golden Corral, wasn't it? Or Shoney's or whatever. I know how to treat a lady. I mean, but, I mean think of, think of, pick your favorite restaurant, man, whatever it is. I mean, your favorite Italian, Mexican, Southern cooking, whatever. You, you picture it. Picture it's buffet. Picture it as the place where, I mean, you can really chomp down into just the joy of, 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 of eating what you know is good for you. And then picture yourself starving outside of the restaurant. Picture yourself famished. Picture yourself just dehydrated. You haven't eaten in weeks. And you know that in that restaurant is just is the nourishment that your soul needs. And then, and then the joy that comes along with getting that. The picture before that front door, there's a, a beehive on the front porch of the restaurant. And there's bees swirling all around. I mean, they're coming after you, right? I mean, they're just kind of flowing around. You're just sitting there. And just think about, like, in that moment, how many of us, if we were famished and starved, we'd say, look, there's a buffet line in there. I mean, Carabas is in there. You got pasta fajoule. You got, you got marinara sauce. You got the whole deal, man. I mean, is it, you get the bread, the big bread. You got big ziti with, the, like, the crusty cheese on the top and the whole deal, the homemade noodles. You got the whole deal in there. And how many of us just kind of, how many of us would say, yeah, but you know what? I might get stung by a bee. I mean, I know I'm starving out here, but I might get stung by a bee. Or I might have to brush on away, so I'm just going to stay out here. <laughs> None of us do that. We'd be like, hey, baby, I got my epinephrine kit right now. I don't care if I'm allergic. I mean, I'm going in there, and I'm getting some food. I mean, if I got a swat of bee, I'm going after it, right? Every one of us would do that. But think of it this way. When, we, when, we, when there's some issue that we know is kind of tying us up between us and a friend or we've, we've done something wrong or whatever, but we know that through that, if we could just clear the air here, if we could just get through this, if we wouldn't just let this issue that we know we have wronged this person or there's some little weird thing between us, if we, we, just, we just let what is on the other side of that door which is joy, freedom, salvation without regret. We let just the embarrassment, the awkwardness, just the, the whatever, the self-pride, the whatever, the little bee stings of, of social weirdness stop us from humbling ourselves to push through that, to get into that door and enjoy the joy of salvation without regret. Think about that for a second. And what Paul is writing to these people is he's saying, man, I am so proud of you because you pushed through that awkwardness and that door and that self-absorption and that moment there of grief. And you didn't stay there outside this place and say, oh, well, you know, if they would have just done this or if this person would have realized. I mean, look, every one of us in every situation right now that we have in our lives, we can all sit and self-justify. Could we not if this person would just do this? Yeah. And you know what that is? Those are like those little bees that are keeping us from going into the place of repentance and and receiving salvation without regret. And in verse 11, Paul is saying something very powerful. He's saying you pushed through that and it produced this beautiful posture in you where you are now living in salvation without regret. I read primarily out of the ESV, but I think this verse, verse 11, is a little bit better in the, uh, in the NIV. And let me read it in the NIV. It says this. It says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. In other words, see what is on the other side of the door here. See what's pushing through when you, when you truly humble yourself. See what it's done in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation. 
And that indignation is not like, that's kind of a word that we don't use much these days. But what it means is you're just like, you're just mad at less than optimal living. You're just, you're just sick and tired of sitting outside of the place of freedom because of some bee's nest of self-embarrassment. And you're saying, no! I mean, think about what, repent, what good repentance does. It's you're just like, I'm just mad at mediocre Christianity. I'm not going to have it. That's what indignation, like, no, I'm not going to do it. And so he says, see what it's produced in you. What indignation, what alarm. Like, we, we don't speak in these terms, but, but do you realize the consequences of, of living these mediocre lives of unrepentance or, 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 or something between you and a friend or some, some harm that you've done that you haven't really gone to that person? You know what the Bible says about those things? It says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 or 6, it says, Hey, if you've got something between a brother, before you come to the altar and worship God, put your gift down and go make it right. I mean, think about the implications of that. Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, is repenting and walking in this humility should be so important. Then when we're not doing it, we shouldn't just develop poor, poor spiritual habits and just go, okay, well, you know, I mean, that relationship kind of fell by the wayside. Or I don't know if this person would just... It should cause alarm in us. I mean, we should... And this would be my dream, actually, is that one day I'd be preaching and the Spirit would move so powerfully that people would just be like... Oh, Sam, I gotta go. I gotta just get up and go. I mean, that'd be awkward, I admit, for the first time. Like, people just getting up or like, Brad, time out. I've got a problem. And we just talk. I mean, actually, let's just, let's just create ground rules and say maybe we can handle that after the service. But wouldn't that, wouldn't that be so awesome if the Spirit fell on us so powerfully that we just, we could not get through another day. We were just alarmed at our mediocre state. And we said, we gotta do something about this. What longing, he says. What concern. What, I love this verse, this, this phrase. What readiness to see justice done. Paul says, man, it produced in you just this, this completely unself-focused, God-honoring posture where you just had to make things right in your life. Now, generally, when we think of repentance, we think of it, as repentance unto salvation, right? And look, I didn't spend much time talking about that at the beginning, but you cannot, you cannot come to Christ unless you repent, unless you turn. In fact, that's the message. Jesus' first sermon is one sentence. After his baptism, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Repent and believe the gospel. Becoming a Christian is not just adding Jesus to your life so that you can have a better life or, you know, seven steps to having a better Tuesday. Repentance, becoming a Christian, ultimately at its core is leaving, having a change of mind, believing in Christ and letting that belief then filter into your life and work in you a life of obedience. And that doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that the Christian life begins with repentance and faith and trust in Christ. And we tend to think of, well, yeah, back in March 16th, 1989, I repented of my sin and now I'm a Christian. But you know this, this little guy by the name of Martin Luther, you may have heard of him, the great Protestant reformer. October 31st, 1517, he is, uh, he's a, a young German monk studying to be a Catholic priest in Wittenberg, Germany. And there's this, uh, there's this Catholic priest fundraiser named Tetzel who's going through the Roman Empire raising money for the building of St. Peter's Cathedral, the Basilica in Rome. 
And one of the poor areas of doctrine in the church at this time is they were selling these things called indulgences where you could literally buy favor from the Catholic Church in Rome so that you could either, you know, help um, buy indulgences to help um, uh, 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 curry up favor with God so that when you bought these indulgences, they, indulgences, they would go to the credit of a, maybe a, a relative that has passed on and now in purgatory. And so it was a terrible system of works that the church was going in at this time. And so, so Tetzel, this man, was selling these indulgences, making these people think that if they bought them, they would either win favor with God or maybe help their great aunt who died who might still be waiting in purgatory waiting for them to buy this indulgence to get them out her out so she could go into heaven I mean crazy and and this is what started the Protestant Reformation Luther's beginning to read through Romans realizing that no repentance and faith alone is what makes you a Christian and Jesus plus nothing equals salvation not religious works not buying of indulgences and this cat named Tetzel comes wandering through Luther's village in Germany and he has this little phrase and he says when a copper you know little piece of money when the copper in the bowl rings a soul from tur- purgatory springs a little you know a little a little ring a little commercial jingle there and, and I'm, he was probably speaking in Latin but I'm sure it rhymed and whatever and Luther blows a gasket and he he just goes berserk he goes back to his house he writes 95 theses in other words 95 critiques of what how whacked the church had become in its doctrine at that point and he nails it to the door at the chapel of Wittenberg and you know what number one was on his thesis the thing the first statement that started this little thing we like to call the Protestant Reformation number one on that list this is what this is what Marty Luke says he says when our Lord listen to this when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, you don't buy some cheap little spiritual gig and then you go about doing whatever you do. You enter into this relationship with Christ and it governs your whole life. And you live in humility with God. So, we end on this. I hope I've convinced you. You're like, I got it. <laughs> I got it. We need to be repentant people. We need to not just repent for salvation, but we need to repent. We need to walk in this humility. We need to, we need to continually examine our lives. And so four questions to help us strive for repentance that brings joyful growth. Because remember, we're tying, all this into, we're tying all this into growing in Christ. Question number one. Am I humble? Am I humble? Are you the type of person that um, is always right kind of always knows everybody around you just doesn't quite get it like you do they would only understand and by the way right now if you're thinking about the person in your life that you wish was here or that needed to hear this that might be an indicator (laughs) that you're not quite as humble as you need to be right they probably do need to be here but they're not and you are and so the holy spirit speaking to us now are you humble? Can you be corrected? Do you, do you have the answer for everything? Are you, are you the one that everybody just saw it your way? You, you know, they, they'd be better off. Listen to this, First Peter 5, verses 5 through 11. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Look, you may be right, but what has your correctness, how, how has it got you into that place where you're still kind of outside the porch of repentance, starving? Are you humble? That's question number one. And number two, am I connected? Are you connected? Are you, do you have people that have authority to speak into your life? Is, is worshiping regularly with saints, with the church, part? I mean, is it a priority in your life? Do you listen to the word preached? Do you have people in your life that, are, that, have, the, that have the authority to say something into your life that's difficult? Or, or do you comport yourself in such a way that it's very difficult to really kind of talk to you in a difficult way and bring something? I, mean, I see a couple personality types that, that I think are defense mechanisms, and I see them in my own life. Number one, we kind of, we step, we kind of act like the jokester. We're like the party person, like, ah, you know, nothing serious. You know, as hey, you know, and, 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 and that person a lot of times through just their social humor or kind of their carefree whateverness is really that's kind of a defense mechanism because they don't want anybody to really take them serious because if somebody had the opportunity to take them serious then they could really kind of speak into their lives and say hey dude you're just you're you're just you're an heir in this area the the jokester personality the the super spiritual personality the person who knows a little just enough bible to be dangerous like they went to one you know bible study and and now they're just you know i think it's a defense mechanism because they they truly don't want to shuck it down and get real with God and expose their lives and be real. They're kind of like the religious face person, and they're the super spiritual person. Are you that, are you that person? Yeah, you, know, you kind of you know three or four verses and you just you throw them out every time and you kind of you're serious. You know, you're the type of person that critiques the church a lot. Well, if they would, you know, if they would just do this, if you know, if Brad would tuck his shirt in, oh, that church could do so well. And if those guys would just kind of do a different type of music or if they would just be a little bit more this way then then i mean are you that are you that kind of kind of the critique super spiritual sort of know-it-all person a lot of men are like this and they're just they're they're kind of the, the guy that has the opinion about everything you know he's just kind of above it all the super spiritual person um i think i think this is probably one that all of us just a selfish man just we live life almost subconsciously through the prism of self-absorption. That's just the lens through which we look at life. At life. Just, hey, man, how could this person... Look, nobody owes you anything. God doesn't owe you anything. Are you selfish? Are you self-absorbed? Is it always kind of about you? And, and, and do you live in a way that you're connected to where people can bring that up in your life. I realize that is a lifelong pursuit and a battle, but are you connected? Look, we're going to talk in a couple of weeks about, about regular gathering together for worship and how vital that is, and I realize you're all here today, so maybe this is the benefit, for the benefit of those catching up by podcast who just kind of poke their head in the door once or twice every couple months, but do you realize you cannot listen? I, 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 to my detriment and to your detriment, I don't really hammer like regular worship attendance, but you, you cannot be a healthy Christian. You cannot be a healthy Christian. You cannot be a Christian who walks in humble repentance unless gathering together regularly is a priority in your life. You can't do it. You cannot do it. 
In fact, the Bible would go the other way and say that you, you may not even be a Christian. Now, I'm not saying you've got to come to church to be a Christian, but I'm saying that there's no category for the unconnected, unprioritized person in the Bible. That's all I'm saying. So are you connected? Question, question number three, are you listening? Are you listening to, are you reading, are you reading the Bible? Or are you, do you have anybody close enough to speak to you? Is, is it just kind of a coffee table decoration for you? Or, or, or do you have a real relationship with the Bible? In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the Bible and how you grow in reading the Bible. I'm not just going to beat you up one time and then leave that hanging. I'm going to, we're going to talk about that in a real, a real honest way about the difficulty of reading the Bible. But are, are you listening? This is primarily the way God speaks to you. If you're not reading the Bible, don't expect God to just, by His Spirit, just drop direction into your life. I remember goofy stuff. I used to just not be reading my Bible, and I'd be like, God, you need to help me. Okay, I'm going to look at the billboards today, and if, like, you know, all the first letters of the left justified things, if they line up, I mean, it's just goofy stuff. People just come to me, I think God's telling me this. Well, you know, are you reading your Bible? No, but God, no, God's not telling you anything. He's telling you to read your Bible. He's telling you to read your Bible. And when you read this, when you read this Bible, it produces a humility in you. But again, we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. And finally... Am I asking? Am I asking God? Am I taking time out of my, my busy life to just say, God, this is what King David says in Psalm 139. Let me throw this scripture up to Psalm 139, verse 23, verse 24. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. What a revolutionary prayer. God... Break open the callous skin of my heart and, and soften me and show me if I am being self-absorbed in this situation. And then get around people who are asking that same question, who are pursuing the same Christ, who are struggling together in a gracious way, and then let's all walk in repentance, which then brings salvation without regret which is where you are nourished which is where you receive instruction and counsel and direction and encouragement and nourishment and growth which then makes you more able to help somebody else who's stuck outside the porch waiting to walk in repentance let's pray Lord I, I pray that as we have settle down on this idea of repentance that you would go far beyond um, the inadequacies of my statements about it and our time together I know God that there are so many areas in our lives where we are just we have blind spots we uh, we don't see things like we should and we desperately need you to come in fact, we're helpless unless you illuminate that to us right now. So, God, I'm, just, I'm simply asking you to come by your Holy Spirit and to shift our attention to ourselves and not to somebody else. And see where we're being self-absorbed or unconnected or super spiritual or judgmental or proud or arrogant. 
And God, give us this disposition of the Corinthians where we push through uncomfortableness, we push through self-embarrassment, we push through social awkwardness, and we, we begin to soften our hearts up and open ourselves up for the joy that comes with repentance and humbling ourselves and walking in this beautiful, eager, earnest way where we are... And we are alarmed, as Paul writes. We are alarmed at things in our life that are out of order, that are areas of our life where we haven't quite yet repented and walked in humility, or things that are just not quite right. God, we are alarmed at that, and it brings about in us an eagerness to see things made right between us and you and us and others in our life. And so, God, I'm just simply asking that you would be so gracious to us to come now and take these words and take them in a thousand different directions in our life and that we would we'd realize where we are walking in pride, arrogance, self-absorption, where we're disconnected, where we're not humble, where we are distancing ourselves because if we really got close enough to anybody, we would, we would hate what might, we might hear. God, help us push through that because in that situation where we build those little defense mechanisms, ultimately... The person who's on the throne in that situation is us. But God, we we read where that that worldly grief produces death. If we just continue to self-protect, it will ultimately lead to death. So God, as we struggle to know what it means to repent, maybe the first thing we should pray for is just the courage to not self-preserve. Because clinging onto our little lives, God, leads to death. But when we cling onto your life and let go of our own life, it leads to salvation without regret. So, God, I know I'm thinking in my mind, there's so many things I need to repent of. I am self-absorbed. I I am in it for my own own sense of self-worth so much. God, I distance myself from people because I don't want to hear some critique. I, I, I... I hide behind the fact that I may know a little bit more, and so I hide behind arrogance, and I need, I need to be humbled, God. I need desperately to be humbled. I need to be... And I need you to break down my defense mechanisms. So would you do that? Would you come into my life? Would you make me... Would you make my skin soft and my, my heart tender? And would you, would you help me walk through the porch where maybe I might get stung by a bee but that bee that that sting really God is just me dying to my own self idolatry it's not you it's it's myself it's my flesh that's dying that hurts and let me see that what's on the other end of that is really sweet joy because because it leads to salvation without regret it leads to growth it leads to nourishment it leads to it leads to a freedom that I desperately want to walk in. And so, God, would you help these dear folks do that as well? God, would you break through like only you can? And would you put your finger on the areas in our life where we, where we are keeping ourselves on the throne and thus becoming idolaters? And would you help us see that it is against you primarily that we have sinned and that we need to repent. And God, I pray that you do this just by gracious Holy Spirit. 
Amen.